0: And that's how policing was seen at one stage. If you were going to make a career of it, you'd be gay, yeah. uh, and on, on the female side. And if you were um, heterosexual, then you'd, you'd have children and leave. When you're
1: in the, the thick of a problem, a mindset, um, a, a challenge, you,
0: you're so close to it, you have no perspective. You seek to understand, because you can't make any decisions until you understand what the issue is, and all sides of that issue. Uh, and, and that, for me, is important
1: in goal-setting. It's about breaking things down into bite-sized chunks, yep. into manageable chunks, yep. that we can then do, even though the hole might look oh. uh, too,
0: too tough. If I look back now, and a lot of the respect that I had from officers was because I'd been there on the ground, and I'd done it all the way up.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Success Is a System. I'm Mike Green, and today we're very honoured and, and pleased to have Julie Spence with us. Now, where do I start, Julie? I've got a whole list of things here. Was the Chief Constable for Cambridge, um, got an honorary doctorate for law in 2008. In 2010, got the uh, Queen's Police Medal. Um, is the Lord Lieutenant for Cambridge, uh, has been since 2017 representing our queen and now uh, king charles uh, has been uh, a leading member of the association of chief police officers president of the british association for women in policing uh, how do you write a cv you, you, all of these awards alone are just it, it, it's so impressive and uh, you you must be very
0: proud yeah i am very proud but it's sort of um, an example of a life well lived and a lot of hard work yeah yeah
1: no absolutely and
0: Hard work. Does that come
1: from your upbringing? I mean, I always, often like, like to start with, you know, where, does it, where did it all begin when you were young at school, family environment? What, 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 tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, I did. I was born, um, well, I was actually born in Framlingham, now made famous by Ed Sheeran, used to be made famous by the castle. Oh, right. uh, <laughs> um, but my father was a farmer, but actually what was true was he was a farm labourer because he actually worked for his father and he had to say thank you for his wages every week. At the behest of his of uh, behest of his mother, but he was a hard worker, and that was where hard work he was up. You know, every morning five o'clock, and often didn't go back to, to bed until late at yeah, night. And, so uh, it, yeah.
1: and and we're surrounded by farmers here. And um, a few years ago, I, I uh, helped them uh, because the, the the then council leader was trying to kick thousands of acres of tenant farmers out to put solar in and it's great grade one and two agricultural land and I remember at the time speaking to some of the farmers and they were saying we're not landed gentry farmers we're no. tenant farmers and you know you might save up for a deposit on a house but our son's been saving up for his first combine or for a lease or on a tenancy uh, and so on and you just see the real hard work ethic and uh, at the time to see a few of those um, people who had been farming for 40, 50 years broken to tears to believe that the tenancy which had started with the Duke of Bedford when he gifted 10-acre strips to different farmers and by marriage it evolved into 300, 400 uh, and so on was potentially going to be taken away by uh, the council that wanted to put solar panels mm. on it. And, I mean, it got me close to that that farming community and it, it it's hard to grow up in that community without a strong... Uh, sense of uh, uh of work and community
0: right? yeah I, I have to say that i think there were there was a sort of vision of farmers of being very affluent having lots of land but this was an area not quite like the tenant farmers but only had a couple of hundred acres his father had actually gone to canada because farming was so tough here and it was he. they stayed out there for 15 years in fact he was born in canada um and had to come back because they just couldn't endure any any more um of the harsh winters. There's pictures of him on horseback. And I just think, you know, in the 19, what would have been early 1900s, 1920, my grandfather himself was a pioneer. He went across to Canada to try to make so a living. Yeah, and you just think it wasn't an era of tractors and combine harvesters. It was you real like hard grind. Mm. And then, you know, they came back. And actually, that ruined my my father's desire ever to travel because see, I think from the moment they left Canada to the moment they got back to England, he was ill. Oh, <laughs> so so I wanted to go back to Canada yeah. well, I was thinking we just never wanted to go on a, on a boat or a plane oh, or dear. anything ever again <laughs> thank you very much
1: well it's interesting because uh we we we've been here for 25 years now nearly but uh it, it's uh 18 um uh 1880s farmhouse and uh when we bought it off the farmer I said look it's lovely and we're so glad to be buying buying uh have the opportunity to buy this but i got to ask you, why would you sell? Because they would had five generations of the family here. And he said, well, let me tell you, he said, farming can be an amazing business. He said, but if for the last five years... You've worked every day to lose 5,000 pounds because the wheat price have dropped. Mm. So it can be a very thankless task as well. There's no, it's not like doing a job and getting a wage, doing
0: a job and getting a wage. You, you, you do all the work and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Well, it was, it was the first, my first touch now I know with mental health issues because my grandfather, I came home one day from school and my grandfather was having a meeting with my father and there'd been a decision that, you know, they had to sell the farm because he couldn't go on any further. He had what they then called a nervous breakdown, which, now we know is sort of um, deeply traumatic mental health issue, but because it wasn't physical, wasn't recognised back then. Yeah, yet, it wasn't. It was you know, they they call a nervous breakdown, and I think the nervous breakdown covered many things. But you know, the numbers weren't adding up, and it was just um, terrifying. So, yeah, terrifying for them, and they were at the forefront of pioneering. I remember the, I even remember them farming initially without a tractor. So we had a horse called Queenie, one of the lovely Suffolk Punches that I now see people are trying to preserve. But then they went to a tractor, and they had one of the very, very first tractors, and then they had a first combine harvester. But they just couldn't, couldn't make it make it work. And so, yeah, it is a myth that if you come from a farming background, then you come from a wealthy background, because that's absolutely not true. There's yeah, so much yeah. hard graft that goes on. And my father was doing lots of things on the side to try and make a little bit extra money. So he had his own pigs. He would breed rabbits, you know, in those early days. Well, and
1: so many people see uh the romantic view of a tractor out in the field in the summer uh and don't realize how you get a downpour that can lay the crop down and you can mm. you know it can destroy what could have been otherwise a good crop and yeah. you have got to be out in it whatever the weather yeah. and and so on but um growing up did uh, did you get involved in that farming or or was you at school what, what,
0: what Yeah well it was it was, uh, it was from naught to 11 that, that then my father had to do a complete change of career although he initially wanted to become a um uh, to be his own tenant farmer, but it, that didn't work out. So he actually became a sub postmaster, and it was the best thing he ever did. So he went from farming into a business, which he said he played to my mother's strength because she'd actually worked in the post office. Oh, as no, thank you. But yeah, in terms of farming, did I get involved? No, not really. I was. In, I used to enjoy it. I didn't realise the turmoil that was going on behind. So I was making castles out of bales in the in the summer and Hi. enjoying fishing around the pond and um, shouting at the pigs and and just enjoying nice sort of country atmosphere. So. Yeah, it was, it was as I got older, I suddenly realised the, the real hardship. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I always used to think my father was being mean on Christmas morning when uh, we as little kids were desperate to open our presents and he, he would come in from milking the cows and not get in until about seven and we were desperate to open them. And yeah. he'd have his breakfast and we probably wouldn't get to open them till eight, which was far too late as any youngster knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: they're, they're up at the minute their eyes open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and in, in that regard... I was just thinking, as you, were, as you were saying there, with children, it's always the the challenge of do we protect them from the real issues that we're dealing with that are going on uh, and that the fact that money might be tight or so on, or do we expose it to them and let them learn from it? But I think as parents often we don't want to tell our kids mm. this stuff. and And it isn't often until they look back and see that they realise how tough things might have been. And I don't know if that's the right answer because – that you know, we can we can wrap them in cotton wool and actually hurt them by not telling
0: them, yeah. can't we? But I think I think I did know that money was tight. Um because the only time I mean I was I was desperate as a lot of young girls are to ride. And I could never have my own pony, but there was a a guy who we called Uncle Tony, who lived up the road, who who had um quite a few horses, and so we'd look after them for a while, so I got that. But my granny, who would save her her money up, she was the one that bought me a pair of jopper boots. My parents couldn't afford to do mm. that. So I was well aware that there were certain things that I might want that they would never be able to afford. So yeah, but it was it was I was sort of grateful for uh, some understanding, not necessarily the warts and all of clearly what was going on in my grandfather's life yeah. in terms of how he could or couldn't manage.
1: And how about ambition? Uh, did you
0: know what you wanted to do at school, or what did you want to do when you were yeah, at school? When I was, when I well, because initially I had a, I had my own sort of. I didn't realize it was a trauma, but because um, I went to secondary school initially in Framlingham, um, I passed eleven plus and went to a grammar school. So I was fortunate from that perspective, but then because my father changed career, I had to then move schools, and I now now realize for any kids, so that six months of schooling in one secondary school, to then <clears throat> go to a 6 months very different syllabus in another school affected my whole um, career at school. Right. So particularly for English, maths, and French, they had different syllabus. And different. And was it all the
1: academia, it. or was it the the friendship groups lo- losing enough to start again uh, as
0: well? Or? No, not really. I don't really remember the friends I made at Mills Grammar School, and I d- only remember partially the friends I made at, at right. college. I have a funny feeling I was slightly independent, Anyway, and just in terms of whether that made me independent, yeah. I had friends, but not what some people would call best, best friends um, and uh, acquaintances. But yeah, so I think that gave me a bit of independence, but also going from I think one thing that did help actually going was that they often say is going from a girl's school. Because in a girl's school, you don't necessarily see the hurdles and the failures. And perhaps and this is often a discussion when I was in policing around um, boys can sometimes hold girls back. And there is a theory in, in in which the Springboard program, which we looked at in terms of developing women, was that um, mixed pre- pre- mixed personal development is not the best way to go around personal development because the nurturing nature of girls means they often will support the boys and help them through the personal development plan, whereas they won't look at their own. So if you oh, do okay. it, if you do it on their own, so Springboard actually had the Springboard program for women um, and they did Navigator for the guys. So if they're helping the
1: boys, do you think that's a, a kind of learned um, behavior to, to, to look after? Or do you think it is um, just girls do that more than boys, um,
0: I as think opposed it, to
1: put self first?
0: It could be a learned behavior. It could also be um, part of boys and girls bonding. As going, as you go forward, you know, yeah. how do you work on a relationship? Um, and, and whether the research would show the same now, it, I'm not sure. But that was really the bit, you know, why aren't women taking their place? And this was, dare I say, 20, 30 years ago when the program was started. Yeah. Why aren't women taking their place where they ought to be in terms of their ability? And we knew that in policing from, you know, we had more women with degrees at sergeant level, but they weren't necessarily reflecting the numbers in the ranks. So what is this what what what's stopping and what's holding women back? And that research started to open a few eyes in terms of the personal development. Yeah. I'm not saying that you shouldn't that you shouldn't network because the whole thing is around when you network you have to have um you know network with men and women and the best in the field. You don't just network with women because it would be a pretty sad organ- sad society if women only networked with women and men yeah. only networked with men.
1: No, no and I saw um in in preparing for for today uh, I saw in a, a short interview you did with some students uh, where you were talking about when you went into policing, there were 7% women, yeah. um, and when you left, it was 27%. Is that, yeah. is that right? And and uh, what stuck with me is, the you, to answer one question, you said, uh, and it doesn't need to be more male because it's far more, and always has been, more about brains than brawn. Yep. Uh, and and it, I, I, it made me think, because it, in fact, um, so many of our problems now are either online or they are corruption or fraud uh, and so on. And we tend to think of sorting the drunks out on a Friday night as opposed to the research and collation of information and the brain work behind solving a case. Uh, And therefore, even at 27%, it doesn't seem like the mix is is equitable.
0: Yeah, but it's gone on since then. I think you'll find today that um, almost 50% of the chief constables are women. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we are, and, and but, it's, but because policing is a career um, and it tends to last 30 and now probably 35 to 40 years, you're going to take a while to get through that. So starting it when, I, when we started it in around 1998, 2000, well, actually even before that, looking to make sure that women achieved their potential and benefited the organisation. But it's not about just achieving your potential, whatever that might be. It's about doing mm. what you do best for the public. Because ultimately yeah. we're a community oh. service, so it's around how you deliver, and we bring both men and women, and the best of men and women together to deliver the best we can for the public.
1: No, and, and another uh, point in that it, it was it was a couple of looked like teenage girls, but they had some really good questions. Mm, they did, uh, and, and one one of the areas you got into talking to with them was obviously there was already um, uh, prejudice between male and female in in the role uh, when you were there, but you talked about having to chase someone in a female police uniform which had a skirt which actually meant that you you didn't even have the right clothing to be able to do the job properly so yeah. not only are you are you expected to do it differently but you are not equipped because you're as a woman yeah. uh in the uniform and yeah. stuff to do it
0: absolutely and it and part of it was you think back now why did people think that it was actually okay for women to do the job in a skirt when actually that inhibited running after anybody do they think that we shouldn't run after anybody and then you know from women's perspective that you'd only be doing half the job and ha- you know not saying we can catch everybody we run after but neither can all the boys they can't no, catch everybody no, they, they run after either and that's where the the brains come in because a lot of the dealing with the drunks on a friday night which still is a, an issue and a problem it's not about the brawn it's not about getting rough and tough with them it's sometimes about talking them down because you just incense things more if you go in hard yeah, so no, it's, I, you know, the old stereotype about let's go in hard and bang a few heads. Mm-mm, that doesn't you're,
1: work. You're absolutely right. And my my background primarily was retail. And then uh, when I had a research business looking at changing consumer uh, and shopper behaviors, uh, we got into hospitality. And interestingly, in shops and in pubs, uh, it was often better to have a female manager because the men, the minute their uh, issues elevated... Their their kind of anger rises, and they are more prone to take it physical. Uh, whereas the women were always better to talk it down. Mm. They they kept their hands by their sides. They mm. didn't kind of even move their arms in, in or g- gesticulate in a in an aggressive manner. But the men tended to incite what could be um, a volatile uh, situation into a fight, as opposed to talking it down. So mm. no, I think that's a really good point, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting. Hope you're enjoying Success is a System. Every Tuesday, we launch it on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. Drop us a note and tell us who you would like to see or hear on Success is a System or what subjects you'd like us to cover to help you and your business. Success is a System, like, subscribe, and make sure you get it every Tuesday for great lessons and systems that have made people wealthy, healthy, and successful.
0: But you didn't start in policing. No, no, I didn't. Um... I have to say, going back to school, which you asked about, yeah, my my role models and my inspiration came from my PE teachers. I don't know why, and and actually, one the the senior PE teacher was also biology. I mean, I used to love sciences. Actually, I used to love anything other than maths, English, and French. If the truth be known, um, which is probably why I had to work really hard at that. So, because I, I focused on sports and the subjects I liked doing, um. I don't know, I just attracted, because they, they were, I don't know, they were women who were confident, who were um, supportive, who were fun. Um, and they, yeah, I just thought I, I would like to do what you do. Yeah. So um, I decided that I wanted to be a physical education and a biology teacher. Um, so, and, and that was pretty good at that time because if you went to careers advice, you would get things like, well, you could be a secretary, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, uh, and the other thing that was seen to be acceptable was a teacher. I have to say, my mother, bless her, she got me a careers a, a careers book because the careers advice that you got in school is 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 not the best. And I was looking at it, and the thing actually, interestingly, I I liked was forensic science and meteorology. I liked both of those. I thought, yeah, but I then thought, hmm far too much science really required mm. and, t- and t- to tick boxes. I was good at it, but I didn't think I was you know, exceptionally good at it. Um, so I thought, no, actually what I want to do is I want to be a teacher. And actually from being probably a bit disruptive in school, um, I focused down because I knew what I wanted to do. So I knew I had to get at least five O-levels and I knew I had to um, apply and get into one of the special teacher training colleges, which were phys- for physical education. Um, so yeah, I had uh, so once I had a mission and a goal, I then really buckled down and, and got got going. But then I surprised the school because the school never had me in the you know Oxford Cambridge category that you might want a bit extra assistant. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I remember you know get, being really anxious about my O level results. And Missus Rankmore, who lived in our village, who was the English teacher, went into school and she said, "I'll get them for you." So she got one from my parents. And they were they were all bowled over because I think I got eight O levels, which was oh, well better than some of the you know the stars were supposed to be getting, um, and that was quite interesting because it went back in for the sixth form in the September, and I'd suddenly gone from being about that level to being that level, um, and that was an interesting. Had move. anything happened other than that? So, no.
1: So it wasn't that. Had you seen your? Did you surprise yourself with those results? Firstly, because often I uh, I talk to a lot of people and where they've achieved more or better than they thought in school, they were surprised, as surprised as some of the teachers, but often because they just assumed that the teachers would put you in the right box. Yeah. Because they're a teacher, you know what I
0: mean? Yeah. um, I I think that for me, it was around um, the hard work. My mother will tell you, I absolutely used to work my socks off in trying to understand what the syllabus was about. I went, and actually this was a lesson later in life, to learn how you do the exams. So, albeit that I never really caught up from losing that first six months of -hmm. education Mm -hmm. um, in English, maths and French. I I understood what I needed to do, particularly for maths, to make sure I got a grade. So, you know, concentrate on the Part A paper, really get that right, Mm -hmm. and then get the workings out right, even if you don't get the result right. So... Um I understood the exam system, and I worked for that. I mean you still don 't know what 's going to come up on the paper, and no. you hope the system works. so I think it was definitely coming into it again but, hard work and that and that
1: 's why often with success as a system, what we 're looking for is 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 how adopting uh, adapting learning a system can help you in different parts of life and I know my girls also were uh, very focused on the process of the exam, how yeah. the exam worked, what type of questions come up, uh, and and actually, you could have more knowledge but not know the system and do worse yeah. than if you knew how to do the exam yeah. and and had enough um, content to to be able to group it into that system, yeah. as it were.
0: Although well, people, are, someone, are tend to be anti-exam, I'm actually not because I think it is, it is a it's one of those things that you have to do and and it's like anything in life you need to learn how to do it and how to achieve through it yeah um and so it is about one understanding it going to all the revision sessions doing some practice ones but it's all about time management because you only have so much time in the exam and it's not spending an hour on the, on the question you like and 10 minutes on the question you don't like yeah. you're far better to spend 40 minutes on the question you like and understand then yeah, where the points yeah. Are yeah. And,
1: and 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 equally that's in business you know i, I, I constantly remember saying when we had a research business and we were trying to get output to lots of different global suppliers and retailers and so on and some of the analysts were so distracted by getting it 100% right that they would feel it was important to miss deadlines Mm. and yet you'd say you know if we're talking brain surgery you probably want it 100% right Mm. but actually if that client doesn't get it by this deadline, they miss the opportunity to go into that board, which affects budgets, which so actually 90, 95% today is better than 100% never. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that timing element, whether it's timing around an exam or preparation in the build up, you know, I I've spoken at a lot of schools, which is, uh, I guess, what I got the honorary doctorate for. But I used to talk about my daughter, one of them, is a musician, and and both did a bit of music uh, early in school. And I'd realize, even though it made your ears bleed when they first start learning, you know, it's 15 minutes every day, Mm. 20 minutes every day. And so I'd, I'd share this with... People six months before they were doing uh, GCSEs or or, um, A levels, and saying, "Look, you've been told where they think your grade is." Firstly, that's where they think your grade is. It doesn't have to be
0: where. No, it doesn't actually.
1: Um, And secondly, if you just put fifteen minutes into three subjects between now and the exam. I, I almost guarantee you'll go up one grade. Mm. That extra one grade in those three areas might open a different door to you, which could transform and be uh, mm. a new beginning to a, a completely different life than if you just carry on as you are today. So, mm. uh, and, and that for me is important in goal setting. It's about breaking things down into bite-sized chunks, yep. into manageable chunks yep. that we can then do, even though the whole might look uh, mm. too, too tough.
0: And I think that's what happens to youngsters. You know, if you look at the exams, you know, you look at your exam schedule, it looks enormous. But if you start, and I, I suppose this is what I did. I, I didn't realize I was good at organizing until I did it. But I I, I would put my revision into sort of blocks. I would actually have plans as to what I was going to be doing and how I was going to be concentrating. Oh, I was a great crammer in terms of I, you know, I had to be um, still reading at 10 o'clock the night before. And then it right. would sink in for the morning. And then fresh. I, would, yeah, I would come out fresh.
1: So um, yeah. So, so you went a on, did a four-year four teaching degree in Liverpool, yeah. uh, got qualified as a teacher of physical education yeah. and biology, yeah. went into uh, teaching and it was the best thing you could ever do. Of course
0: not. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, I followed love. I then met my first husband and I went to the West Country and I had a job at uh, Sidgut School in Winscombe, which is a, a co-educational Quaker school. Um, and I'd never worked in a um, co-educational Quaker um, uh, private school or anything like that before. I actually didn't even know what Quakers were. Uh, I, I do now, clearly. Um, and I was the only one responsible for girls' PE, but then I was w- working with somebody else for the biology. So, yeah, I would never advise anybody to go in to be head of something when on your first job. No, That's always best to have something. Yeah.
1: But a good I, compliment. I mean, they must
0: have... Yeah, I, it was a compliment. But it was, I have to say, it's a compliment that I bit off. And uh, it, it, I have to say, not, not quite almost killed me. But I had flu in one of those. And I was really, really ill. And I came home um, uh, and I slept almost for a week. But oh, some yeah. of that was also because with my job, I was also um, assistant head of a girl's um, house. So looking at, looking after 14-year-old girls and putting them to bed and getting them up in the morning is probably why I've never had children I think right. it put me off absolutely um knowing what the teenage years was going to actually be like um so yeah and to be honest I hated it I absolutely hated and, it and
1: so you lasted a year how how quickly did you know oh my god teaching's not for me or-
0: And I've I've reflected on this frequently when people have asked, when did I suddenly realize it was a February morning, it was really cold, I was umpiring a girls hockey match, I had a tin whistle in my mouth, and because it was so cold it was sticking to my lips, the girls would rather watch the boys play rugby, (laughs) and I thought, what are you doing? Why Why are you still, why are you doing this? And from that moment on, I knew it was just not for me, and I had to look at something else. So I wondered initially, was it the private school environment I didn't actually like? Because for me, you know, the little things kids did became monumental. You know, they Mm. became as if they were a world crisis. And I thought, that's out of all proportion to reality. So that wasn't, I didn't find that very pleasing uh, from that perspective. Uh, So I thought, should I go into the public uh, school sector, as in, you know, the government sector? Would I find that better? And I did think about it. But luckily for me, my first husband, who was in the Merchant Navy as a cadet officer, um, decided that he wanted to spend more time ashore with me. Um, And uh, he applied to Avon Fire Brigade and Avon and Somerset Police. And again, fortunately for me, Avon and Somerset Police were really quick on the recruitment, and they recruited him to be an officer. So when I was going through these thoughts about what do I want to do, I thought, hmm, I think I could do that. Because you're hearing each day. Yeah, what I was his hearing what he was about. doing, what he was seeing. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd always, I remember when Merseyside Police came to co- came to the college in Liverpool um, and they were trying to recruit at the time. And I thought, oh no, I couldn't do that. Because I was somebody, if anybody mentioned blood, I had to undo my collar. And I thought, oh, right, okay. you know, we're always dealing with blood and go, I couldn't be doing that job. It would be horrendous. And I thought, well, I'm not here training as well for four years to something go off and be a police officer. Why would I suddenly change careers? Little did I know. Down the line. In terms of success and systems, I'd love to unpick some of that because
1: I think there's so many useful tips and lessons in there in the sense that I think lots of people find themselves in the wrong job and think, oh, I've trained for it now. You know, it'll be a waste. My parents might be uh, embarrassed or ashamed or, or whatever. Um, and and, and it, was it scary? Or was it, it liberating was scary. to know that you... It was
0: scary initially, because I, I felt I had to tell my mum. And I thought, they have just put me through four years of university. Um, they were really happy with my career choice. I thought, what on earth are they going to think when I say that I hate this and I'm going to leave? And in fact, when I build up courage to tell my mother, she was really supportive. Um, mm. And she said, you have to do what's right for you. That, that's all you want to hear at that point. That's absolutely all you want to hear. And then... Um, I put in my application for the police service, uh, and that was done with a great deal of confidence. Not realising that when I was recruited, that I was the first married woman they ever took.
1: All right, okay.
0: Uh, and the reason it was f- I was the first married woman because if you think about that era, the view was you you take young women, they meet a husband, they have a first child, and probably leave. If they don't have a f- if they don't uh, leave after the first child, they'll leave after the second. And the and the system would then have put pressure on people. To so the system,
1: in effect, was prejudiced because it believed if you were married, they didn't have long uh, to exploit you before yeah, you would have children. exactly,
0: definitely. And, and uh, yet
1: you, did, you intended not to have children. No. Nope. But so okay. uh, well, you could best, have been prejudiced by it.
0: Yeah, I definitely could have. But the best thing, I think, was probably interviewed by a senior officer who was openly gay. And she could see the potential. And I was really, you know, there was I was fortunate on a number of levels. Um so there were, and that's how policing was seen at one stage. If you were going to make a career of it, you'd be gay, yeah, uh, and on on the female side. And if you were um, heterosexual, then you'd you'd have children and leave. And of course, the military were exactly the same. Uh, and you would see, and we got the legacy of this later. In fact, we did encourage women who wanted to come back to come back after they'd had children, uh, but you don't see that anymore. You know, women who want to juggle a family and uh, career—it's—it's. It's, Really possible, really easy. Um, yeah. What well, easy? i have to say I do take my hat off to chief constables with three children. You know, it's <laughs> uh, yeah. and if you talk to Elizabeth Neville, who was the chief constable of um, Wiltshire, she um, she didn't. It's also the thing about telling your boss what the impact on your family life is. So she was an assistant chief in Sussex. She <clears> used to um, he used to have a seven thirty meeting for, of his command team. So she would take the kids to the bus stop. but She'd put them in the in the phone box until the bus. Or Mrs. X mm. came along, and then they were allowed to come out of the phone box. So that was the only way that she felt she could keep Where, her whereas kids Whereas
1: half an hour later for the meeting yeah. could have...
0: So once she told him this, he was he was horrified, and he made sure that the meetings were half an hour later. But it's that courage to tell somebody yeah. the impact mm. it's actually having. So for a small well, change... Uh, uh, it's, it's
1: courage, but also um, one of the things you said was... Um, the little things the kids did when you was in that unhappy place were monumental
0: yeah
1: uh, which was completely out of perspective you, you yeah. said but the, the reality is when you're in the the thick of a problem a mindset um a, a challenge you you're so close to it you have no perspective mm. and it is only when you step out and up uh, that you realize I had that whole conversation only with myself and came to the conclusion that he would say no only with myself when what have I got to really lose to just ask the question mm. or to let it be known. And and I, I, I do wonder if in school we should get into a bit more behavioural understanding that there are different behaviours and so on, conflict uh, resolution, and also that conflict isn't all negative. Conflict is often just disagreeing but disagreeing with an intent of getting to an understanding, mm. which actually is a really positive thing. But yeah. often the minute we think there's any kind of conflict in a conversation or an ask, we often have a conversation with ourselves and talk ourselves out of it before asking the question.
0: Yeah. Well, I always think the same with a grievance procedure in an organization. So you have a grievance against X. It tends to be the first person who raises the grievance, then sets an investigation off. And because of the first person... They think they're right, and initially you think the system probably thinks they might be right. But actually, a good outcome for agreements procedure is to agree to disagree. Because two people come at things from two different perspectives. One will like it, one won't like it, or whatever. doesn't necessarily mean that either of them are wrong. It just means that actually something isn't right, and they have to agree to disagree. You might then agree to do something else about how you can ameliorate it, but it doesn't mean to say A is bad and B is good, or B is bad and A is good. No, it means and they
1: don't have to change
0: their view, but no, they no, should definitely. understand that there's not just yeah. their view. Yeah. And it's you know, it's it's about vindication because you won the grievance. Nobody wins a grievance procedure. It's actually should be an organizational conversation around why did it go wrong. Now there are some that will be personally related and actually there will be more right than wrong, but I've seen more in my career of actually being a balance about you know you have to agree to disagree guys because yeah. actually you're seeing things through the, the same things through different lenses.
1: Well, and interestingly enough, the you said nobody wins agreement procedure. Interestingly, often in any conflict, uh it's automatically seen as there has to be a winner and a loser, mm. and therefore it, it, all sorts of egos come into play as opposed to let's have a conversation. Yeah. And can we get to a better understanding? Is there any move in that conversation? And and uh that, that plays out not only throughout people's lives or careers, but in business all the time, people avoid that negotiation or because they assume so much as opposed to just, look, I'm going to put myself in that position. I'm going to go in there positive. I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to uh, try and put, put it in a way that I think is constructive. And, and that's got to be positive. But if it is even calling it a grievance procedure, when you're asking mm. for that meeting, the, the, the stage has been set for conflict hasn't it? as opposed oh. to a conversation
0: I mean, part of my sort of philosophy as Chief Constable was always seek to understand so before yeah. you make any decision understand, understand yeah understand yeah what's happening on either side or whatever's yeah. whatever you're doing is seek to understand because you can't make any decisions until you understand what the issue is, and all sides of that issue. Absolutely. So you're going to policing. Yeah, yeah. Did you love it immediately? or Because you
1: obviously had a meteoric rise, and I want to get into some of the roles you've had, because yeah. it's fantastically interesting. But I think it's hard for people to do very well unless they really love what they do. So it would suggest yes. to me that you loved it.
0: I did. But actually, from the moment I joined, I loved it. It was really, it was just refreshing. And as far as I was concerned, every long weekend that we had was like having a half-term every month, (laughs) going
1: back from school. Yes, as opposed to school, (laughs) especially
0: in a boarding school environment. Yeah, and that was the only thing I didn't say that the the killer blow was the only day off I had was a Tuesday. So you were literally, you know, when people say that teachers have long holidays, I have to say that, you know, a lot of that is recovering from the fact, particularly in the the private sector, one day off a week, quite often. Well, even
1: within uh, the days, it's like 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Oh, yeah. The long days. Yeah.
0: No, and... Yeah, policing was—it was defined. It was hard work. Uh, you sort of lived hard, worked hard, really, and it was—I really enjoyed it. But I, my aspiration was not to stand still and stay a constable for my for the rest of my life.
1: And were you always? I mean, just the the growth is is inspirational and and very impressive. But it was so quick, were you always focused on the next position you were targeting, or did did you have someone who sort of was uh like a, almost a god parent you know in in the oil industry when you went to work there, you were given a godfather, which is someone more senior who is watching your career normally and is going to make sure you're not held back and is going to make sure you get broad experiences
0: did you have any was there any mentoring in in the police in no, that sense, or? it was purely me. And I say that because um, I didn't get on the fast track scheme, which is because I, I, I came as a graduate. People thought I probably would get on the fast track scheme. I still don't understand it, which is why the strategic command course, which is a similar three-day assessment that you do to become a senior officer, I really wanted to understand the system because I think I was very naive. I don't think I understood what, a, what the fast track system was. It was a bit like starry eyes. I, you know. But I have to say, in hindsight, I'm glad I wasn't on the fast track Because I look back now, and a lot of the respect that I had from officers was because I'd been there on the ground and I'd done it all the way up. I hadn't done any sort of fast through the initial stages because the initial grounding—I suppose this is the bit of it. This is the bit that's really important. The grounding is so important to actually then build the next level, and also the skills that you've already got are so important because at that time it literally was for promotions dead men's shoes. So I did seven years, I think, as a as a constable. And um, on average, people were getting promoted to sergeant about 10 or 11. Right. And then somebody suggested to me that why didn't I look at training? Well, I probably vowed never, ever, ever to go back teaching ever oh, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I thought, well, Julie, come on, you know, play to your strengths. You've got this behind you. And um, so I went on, a, on, a, on an instructor's, it was called then, program, and I learned more about teaching in the 10-week instructor program that ever I learned in
1: Thank you for joining us on Success Is A System. Watch out for an exciting part two with Julie Spence next week.